119 this morning, the passage that I read a few minutes ago. Uh, this week, I was, as I was preparing, I was concentrating really on these two words, portion and love, or inheritance and love. Um, the first word in verse 57 there is, is portion or inheritance. And the first word in the last verse of this section there in Psalm 64 is covenant love, hesed love. So those two thoughts, those two parameters, if you will, have kind of been what I was thinking about this week. And early in the week I was reading, I was thinking about inheritances, I was thinking about portions of estates and that type of thing. And it was amazing to read how over the years... Um, as in a general way, it's not exclusively this, but generally it could be said that large inheritances that are left to um, heirs are, are typically pretty much gone within a, a couple of generations. Um, usually the heir who receives that large inheritance hang on, hangs on to it in one way or another, but his children usually blow it. And one of the things that was kind of interspersed in there, one of the things that was true in regards to this was lots of times these fathers or these ones who left this inheritance were pretty removed in the lives of those children. They provided for them financially. Uh, but over and over I read about the case where the father was just absent. The love of that father was not something that that child had really known in an intimate way. And so while they were left with this fortune, there was really a hole in their heart. So think about that in regard to what the psalmist is telling us here as we're working our way through Psalm 119. He begins with the reality of what we have, who we have in Christ. We have him. And underneath that, over that, surrounding that, as we just sang, is this covenant love. So inheritance and love were the two things that kind of were most on my mind this week. And, and the sermon is divided into those things. Um, the Lord is my portion, my inheritance. And because that is the case, here's how I'm called to live. And the covenant love of God fills the earth. His word release, reveals that to us. Our hearts reveal that to us if we're in Christ. And because that is the case, then here's, here's how I live. Here's how I walk in this world. So let's look at it there. It begins with my portion. My portion is the Lord, Real, is literally how it reads in the Hebrew. And, and there's, there's, not the, the excl, there's not that punctuation mark that we have, but the context kind of says there'd be an exclamation point there. My portion is the Lord. And that's how the psalm begins. And this is a, it's an amazing proclamation, okay? It's one thing to say that we belong to the Lord, right? But to say that He is mine, He is my portion, He is my inheritance, that's an amazing proclamation. That is a Spirit-led recognition, too. The Spirit of God reveals that to us and shows us that. And this idea of portion comes from the Old Testament. And more specifically, it comes from the idea of the tribes of Israel going into the promised land and being allotted a portion of that land. And so you remember as they entered into the promised land, each tribe was given a portion 
of that land. Each tribe was given an inheritance, if you will. And that allotment, that portion, was theirs. It was their inheritance, literally, from the Lord. It was not to be sold. It was to be passed on. That portion was their means of sustenance. It was their means of provision. That's how they were cared for. That's how they fed their families. That was their means of survival. Even more than survival, it was their means of flourishing. It was a land of of what? Milk and honey. God's design was not just for them to just eke out a living. They were to flourish in that. Points us to all that God has for us in Christ in eternity. But it was also their means of blessing from God so that they could bless others. So that was what was given to all of the tribes except one. The tribe of Levi, the Levites, or the priest, did not receive a portion of the promised land. They did not. Now, they had, they had places to, for their flocks to graze. They had cities to live in. But the the Levites, the priests, the descendants of Levi, did not receive a portion of the promised land. So what's up with that? Well, in Numbers chapter 18, listen to what it says in verse 20. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Well, wow, what's up with that? That doesn't seem fair. Listen to the next sentence. God said, I am your portion, and your inheritance among the people of Israel. In Joshua chapter 13, when they're dividing up the property, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. So carry that concept in your mind over to the New Testament, okay? Carry it over into the New Testament and think about what Peter says in First Peter chapter 2. In verse 9, you are a chosen people, what? A royal priesthood. So that portion that was to the Levites of God himself carries over into the New Testament as we are God's chosen people. We are his priesthood in Christ and that allotment is ours. So we can say with David and David as the king was also serving in in the role of priest In Psalm 16, it says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God, possession. You are my God. I have no good apart from you. And then down in verses 5 and 6, listen to what David says. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. He is my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Amen. My portion is the Lord, the psalmist said. So when we're saying that the Lord is my inheritance and he is my portion, what are we saying? We're saying he is enough. He is. No, he is more than enough. You're my everything. He's saying. Spurgeon said the psalmist said he took God to be his portion and left other matters to those who coveted them. This is a large inheritance, Spurgeon said, for it includes everything and more than everything. Yet no one chooses it for himself until God has chosen and renewed him. I go to the eye doctor, like many of you, to get my eyes checked. Because over the years, the vision starts to go. I've seen some of you pulling out the readers. I know how it goes. Okay. Well, think about this spiritually for just a second. 
to be able to see the portion that we have, to see the inheritance that we have in God, to see what we have in Christ. The ability to see and treasure what we have in Christ is something that we have to work to maintain. Now, God in his grace gives us his spirit. But we work. A part of our discipleship, a part of our spiritual discipline is to keep checking our vision, to see who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. And it's a gift that needs care and it needs constant attention or our sight gets weak. We don't see and appreciate God the way we should. This is why this is why Paul prayed in Ephesians. For the eyes of the Ephesian believers, for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened so that they would know the hope of their calling, the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints and the, and the, and the power, the amazing power of that, of that power that God has for us in Christ. My portion is the Lord and any other portion, any other inheritance, any other treasure will not satisfy us. Solomon learned that, didn't he? Another use of that same word is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Here's what Solomon wrote. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my, all my toil, and this was my reward. There, that word, my reward, is the same, my portion. What, what Solomon is saying, I kept no pleasure from myself. Whatever I saw that I wanted, I got. And this was my portion from all my toil. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing he saw, he withheld. Nothing that he wanted, he didn't get. That was his temporary, temporal reward. And in the end, it was empty like the wind and gone. So no other treasure, no other inheritance, no other portion will satisfy us. We may think we're satisfied, but in the end, the heart will be empty. Solomon didn't learn the lesson that his dad learned. In Psalm 73, David said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And listen, my portion forever in Psalm 73. I'm listening to the new album by Lecrae. It's really good. There's one of those songs in there called Sunday Morning. Kirk Franklin has a portion in that song. Listen to what he says. On my birthday, Kobe, Gigi, and Seven Souls remind me that the tree of life is so uncertain. And tomorrow has unpredictabilities as colorful as the smiles that took off that day. May that Sunday morning resonate past trophies and trinkets and the ongoing pursuit of more to sober us with the humbling truth. My life and your life is just a vapor. And if what you see is all you see, then you do not see all that there is to be seen. God is my portion. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened to see all that we have in Christ. Because if we're not seeing that, church, we're moving in the wrong direction. Our hearts are pursuing the wrong thing. And we are offering to the world a message that's empty and in the end will only take. It does not give. The Lord is my portion. Because He is my portion, 
then I'll be obedient to his word. Not because I'm obligated to do that to earn something, but because I love him. I love him. Notice what the text says. I promise to keep your word. And overwhelmed by the reality of the relationship that he has with the sovereign God of the universe, the psalmist then makes a pledge and a promise. And we've seen that over and over. One of the things that I'm, I'm praying for myself and for us is that we will just have the spiritual guts to make a promise to God. I promise to keep your word. I promise to do your will. Now, I recognize I'll fail, but that doesn't, I'm not going to back off of that pledge and that promise. Not because of what I can do, but because of what he does in and through me. And so the, he says, I make a promise. I'm going to promise to keep your word. And this is done out of love, not out of an obligation. Jesus says, if you love me in John 14, you will what? Keep my commands. You will keep my commands. In 1 John 5, it gets real specific. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commands and his commandments are not burdensome, John said in 1 John. God's gift to us is himself. And he asks us to give back the gift of obedience. As, as make a promise to keep your word, God, because I love you. So because God is my portion, I'll be obedient to his word. Next, the psalmist says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Because God has promised, I will be bold in seeking his face. Like a child seeks the face of his father. That's the image that came to my mind. That's, that's what I was thinking about. Habakkuk says that God is of purer eyes than to look on evil. And yet here the psalmist is entreating. That means begging. He is begging God to look at him. God, show me your face. And the face of God, like the face of a king, is, is the sign of his favor. If he turns away from you, you're in trouble. But the face of God, that's why, that's why the ironic blessing says, Lord, let your face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. It's a picture of heaven. That's what heaven's going to be. The light of Christ, the light of God shining on us in the presence of that. And so David begs that the God that God would turn his face toward him like a child saying, "Daddy, look at me." And that's the term that Jesus used, "Abba, Father." And we can come and boldly ask him to look at us. But notice what the psalmist says next. "Be gracious to me according to your promise." Yes, I can come because he's my father, but I I come humbly. Because I'm still a sinner. And I'm still coming into the presence of God. And because He promises me His grace, I don't presume upon that with boldness. I trust in that with humility. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that, that you have said that if I will confess my sin, you are faithful and just to forgive my sin. That's a promise of grace that I hold on to. God, thank you that you promised me that nothing in this world, nothing seen or unseen, no devil in hell, no angel above is going to be able to separate me from your love. What a promise of grace that is. And so, yes, I'm going to seek his face, but I'm going to be humble as I do it. Um, we're reading a book, a group of pastors. Jason has, has referenced this book a couple of times and a couple of things that... He's written by Dane Ortland. It's, it's just a tremendous little book. 
And one of the things he points out in one of the chapters of that book is that through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're given all these accounts of of Jesus' work, of his ministry, of his miracles. We're told about his life, about his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, but only in one place in those Gospels, only in one passage, does Jesus reveal to us his heart. He does that in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what Ortland says. In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told. That he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Who could have ever thought up such a Savior? He says. And what does that mean to us, that he is gentle and lowly? Here's, here's what he says. Get my pages turned right. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not one of a pointed finger, but of open arms. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. Remember his grace according to his promise. James says he gives more grace, right? How much do I need? I need more. Is, is, is that enough? No. I need, I need more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We can ask God boldly to turn his face to us because we are his child. But because we still sin in humility, we say, God, I trust your promise according to your word, your promise of grace. I need that grace. Because he is my portion then, as he gives me that grace, I'll be careful to examine my ways according to that word. And I will change as necessary. Notice what the psalmist says. When I think on my ways, in verse 59, I turn my feet to your testimonies. So while he's in the word, he is looking at his life like a mirror. And as he looks at his life through the light of the word, he sees that he needs to turn to God, right? So that's the process. In the word, looking at my heart. And then looking back to God and coming to him and confessing that sin and letting him see and letting myself see through the light of the Holy Spirit what it is that I have done wrong. And I turn my feet. That's what he says there. I'm going to change. So often we get comfortable in our sin. I do. Just that besetting sin, you know, that's just the thing I continue to struggle with. Well, in light of what we see in Psalm 119, God, I, I want to promise to turn from that besetting sin. I want, I want to turn from that. It's not just my personality. It's not just kind of what I've learned. I'm a new creature in Christ, right? 
I want to live that way. So I'm going to examine my ways and I'm going to turn my feet according to your testimonies. That word testimony, remember, that's what God says about himself. Spurgeon said, when the mind repents of wicked ways, the feet are soon led to good ways. (laughs) But repenting, he says, will not take place unless there is deep, sincere thought. When I think on my ways. That means taking the minute to just examine my life and do so with some depth. Because he is my portion, I'll make obedience a priority. Verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. I posted this earlier this week. Many of us are eager to obey custom in society, yet slow in serving God. I struggle with the fear of man. I'm more concerned about what others might think about me than I am about what God thinks about me. And I'm I'm not going to ask you to amen, but I don't think I'm the only one that struggles with that. Right? I don't think I am. And I'm quick to try to do what someone might want me to do or quick to try to say what might be pleasing or acceptable to somebody else. While I'm not so quick to do what God calls me to do, I'm not so quick to be obedient to his commandments. If my people who are called by my name, God says in Second Chronicles 7.14, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. He says if, if we will turn from our wicked ways, that means to repent, then he says I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Richard, Richard Owen Roberts says this, Our churches are loaded with people who can testify to the occasion in which they repented, yet sin is shot through their lives. They are utterly worthless as a witness to the grace of God. They do vast damage in the church because they think that repentance is something that occurs at a point in time in the past. No, repentance is an ongoing spirit and attitude, Robert says. We live consistently in repentance just as we must live consistently in faith. All the pity, he says, of the millions in America who can tell you the day and the hour they accepted Christ, yet they have no ongoing faith. Both faith and repentance, he says, are continual. They must not cease. That's the picture of walking in the reality that God is my portion. He is my inheritance. I'm going to be quick to be obedient to him. In Gentle and Lowly, Ortland says this, when you sin... Do a thorough job of repenting. Rehate sin all over again. Consecrate yourself afresh to the Holy Spirit in His pure ways. But reject, listen to this, reject the devil's whisper that God's tender heart for you has grown a little colder or a little stiffer. God is not flustered by your sinfulness. His deepest disappointment is with your tepid thoughts of His heart. Christ died, placarding before you the love of God. Walking in the reality that God is my portion, that he is our inheritance. Then I'll be quick to turn to his word and I'll be quick to turn my feet according to that word. So that's that portion. Now what about this this covering of God's love? Let's, Let's close by thinking about that love. Look at what comes in the rest of the psalm, starting in verse 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. 
At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Because the earth is full of his steadfast love, his covenant love, what does that mean to you and me? It says that even when I'm opposed by evil, I remember his word. It says that even if it means losing sleep, I'm going to get up and thank him for his word, for his testimonies about himself. And even though they may be few, I am not alone in this walk of faith, right? I am partnering with, I'm in fellowship with other believers who also are holding to his word. And even though most people don't see it, and even though sometimes I forget it, the earth is filled with the covenant love of God. So think about that covenant, hesed love, that mercy for just a second. Guys, that's, that's who he is. That's God's name. Okay? That's God's name. When Moses wanted to see God, the Lord passed by him and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast chesed love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. God is love, John tells us in 1 John 4, 16. And whoever abides in God abides in that love. So God's love is as boundless and an eternal as he is, right? God's eternal, and so is his love. That's who he is. How precious is your steadfast love, the psalmist says, O oh God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So let's just think about that love for just a second. In love, God created this world that we live in, okay? He's self-existent. Full in himself. He didn't need to create this world, right? Do you understand that? Out of love, he created this world. And out of love, he sustains this world. And theologians call this his common grace. Now, there's nothing common about it. Now, our world takes it as common. We take for granted that we get up and breathe in the morning. We take for granted that we were born in this place and this time and that we have these things around us. Lost and saved alike, we take that for granted. But that is God's common love. It's his common grace. He upholds and sustains the sparrow when and when it falls. He knows that. And humanity is of more value than that to him. We are made in the image of God. And his love covers us and holds us. He sustains us. Now, the question is, does he love everyone the same? Many would say so, but I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. He loves, but he loves differently when it comes to that saving love. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus exemplified in John chapter 13. And I know sometimes it's hard for us to get our minds around this, but... In John 13, 1, it says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in this world, it says, he loved them to the end. Or he loved them to the fullest extent. Telos is that word. He loved them to the fulfillment, to the desired end of that love. An illustration of this, I think, is when God says, when Jesus says that he loves the church as his bride. I love you all. I do. I love you all. I don't love you like I do this lady sitting up here on the second row. 
She's my wife. She's my bride. She's part of me. And Jesus loves his own in a way differently than he loves the world. And because we are covered in that love, the whole world is covered. The world is full of this love of God. It sustains. It gives life. That saving love, that saving grace, ramps it up exponentially. It's a different kind of love. This is the good news, church, that we have to share with the world around us. Do you hear that? That is what we need to be proclaiming. That is what we need to be posting. That is what we need to be living out around us. The gospel, the love that God has for us even while we're still sinners, that's, that's what we need to be just blowing out there for people to hear, living it out. Because the earth is filled with his steadfast love, then the psalmist says, even when I'm opposed by evil, I will remember their wor- your word. And the picture here is of people plotting against him. It's not just silent. It's not just being privately ridiculed. He's being publicly attacked. They are trying to set a trap for him, ensnaring him. Why? Because he keeps God's law. Because he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loves others as himself, if we look at it in the picture of the New Testament. Because we seek to love God more than ourselves, and because we seek to love others more than ourselves, the world who seeks to live for itself and loves itself is not just simply going to let us go. They're going to oppose, set traps, ensnare, the psalmist says. And we walk in the light of that reality, holding on to the truth of what he has told us in his word. And his promise is that nothing can separate us from his love. So we hold on to that. Even when we're opposed by evil, I will remember your word. There's a discipline in this church. There's a discipline in this. It is when we go through difficulty, when we are attacked, when we are going through persecution, even in our society where it's nothing compared to what others in the world would face. We hold on to God's word, not our feelings, not our situation. We hold on to the promises of God because the earth is filled with his steadfast love. And that steadfast love has been shown to us in Christ. Then even when we're opposed by evil, we remember his word. And because the earth is filled with his steadfast love, even if it means losing sleep, I'm going to get up and have church. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I've figured out something else that goes on as you start to get a little older, besides your eyesight. Dad gum, you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, wide awake. What is up with that? What's the deal with that? Just, right? I got an amen on that one. Mm -hmm. Just, ding! Just, what? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. So I might reach for my phone. See what's up out there. Or I might pull up my laptop. See what's going on out there in the digital world. The psalmist says, when we have trouble falling asleep, or when we wake up in the middle of the night, or wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning wide awake, how about instead of reaching for our phone or some other digital device, we reach for the Word. Right? Or we just... In the sanctuary of our hearts, pause for a second and begin to recollect and thank God 
for his righteous rules. Thank God that we can trust him in his justice. We can trust him in his ways. We can trust him with what he is doing. And, and just counting it all joy, <laughs> even at 3.30 in the morning, that God's given me an opportunity for that. That is a discipline, church. Make no mistake about it. You don't do that naturally. But the psalmist says, at midnight I rise to praise you. Or literally, it just means in the middle of the night. It's not 12 o'clock necessarily. It just means when I wake up, or if I wake up, I wake up praising you, thanking you, worshiping you. Because the earth is filled with his steadfast love, I love what it says next. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. They may be few. There may not be many of them. There may not be many of us, if you want to put it that way. But even if there are only a few, I am not alone in this journey of faith. I have the companionship, I have the fellowship of other believers who also are focusing and living to keep God's word. 1 John 5, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That picture of God's light, that picture of his love transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his beloved son. And 1 John goes on to say, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But in verse 7 he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will not walk alone. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And in that walk of fellowship, in that relationship of committed love to one another, focusing on being obedient to God's word, it says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we walk in the reality of that. And so even though we may forget that sometimes, and even though it seems that there's not many, We are surrounded and we have this covenant love covering us and that covenant love covering us calls us into a covenant commitment with one another that your spiritual well-being will matter to me and mine will matter to you. And we are not in this struggle alone. But the common point here, church, is not anything other than Jesus and his word. It's not being American. It's not being Republican. It's not being Democrat or independent. It's not being Southern or Northern or white or black. I'm thankful, he says, that I'm covered with your covenant love. And I'm in fellowship with those who are seeking you through your word. That's what binds us together. He finishes here, even though most don't see it. He says, the earth is filled with the covenant love of God. Think about that. The earth is filled with the covenant love of God. And even though many don't see it, and even though I forget it, Lord, I thank you for that. Do we live in that reality, church? God's love and his mercy is who he is. It's foundational. It's the foundational characteristic from which everything else flows. And I just, want to, I just want to encourage you today, if you have never trusted in Christ, 
This idea of repenting and turning from ourselves and our sin and trusting in Him. Martin Luther told us that that's a constant in the life of a believer. Okay, It's not that we do that once sometime back when I was 14. It's a constant and consistent work of God in us. Ortland says this, We can be immoral dead people, or we can be moral dead people. It's not about whether we're moral or immoral. Either way, he says we're dead. The mercy of God reaches down and rinses clean not only the obviously bad people, but the fraudulently good people as well, both of whom equally stand in need of God's resurrection. God is rich in mercy. He does not withhold that mercy from some kinds of sinners while extending it to others. Because mercy is who he is in his heart, mercy gushes forth to sinners one and all. His mercy overcomes even the deadness of our souls and the hollowed out zombie-like existence that we are all naturally born into. Turn today and trust in our merciful Savior. And then Christian... This is the environment we live in. It's this covenant love of God. It's the air we breathe. We're no longer under law. We're under grace. We're under mercy. And that faithfulness is new every morning. So that means we love differently. We extend grace and forgiveness like we've received it. We cherish and hold close to our hearts the blood-bought relationship we have with each other. We guard that unity. And we have the heart of Christ for a lost world around us that is hungry and starving for this kind of love and mercy. They don't know it. They can't know it. And God calls us to live it out, to proclaim it out, and pray that His Spirit will work in people's hearts so that they'll receive that same saving love and mercy. Let's pray together. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, Lord, should cause us to just stand back and be in awe. That God, while we were still sinners, you exercised your love toward us. You demonstrated your love for us. You did not wait for us to earn it or deserve it because we never could. God, praise you for that saving grace today. We praise you, Lord, that while we were still sinners, you loved us enough to send your Son to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. So, Lord, I pray that you'd burn that reality, that truth into our hearts, that we would, Lord, return to that first love, as John says in Revelation. That you'd revive us again, Lord, according to that love. That, God, you'd compel us to live in the reality of that love in relation to a hurting community around us. Lord, they're starving for that affection. They're starving for the justice that comes in Christ. They're starving for the community, Lord. They're alone. So, God, compel us, I pray. Because the earth is filled with your covenant love and because you belong to us, Lord, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, empower your church, I pray. Empower us. Compel us. As ministers of reconciliation, God, to go out to this lost and hurting world around us. Proclaiming, demonstrating, living out the precious love of Jesus. 
Lord, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.